So, I'm here to talk about something I call the philanthropic industrial complex, okay? And we're going to start with a premise, which is that philanthropy, the way we think about doing good to others using money, is fundamentally broken. I am the CEO of something called the Crypto Council for Innovation. I'm also the co-host of a podcast on the Coindesk Network called Money Reimagined, where every week my co-host Michael Casey and I talk to people about what they're doing in the ecosystem in crypto. Uh, and we talk to real people who are using crypto for good, for good ends. We also talk about regulation and policy and how all these things can help or hinder the movement of money across borders. Now, this is something I have a long history of interest in. Uh, before, well before I jumped into the crypto ecosystem with two feet, which was um, full-time five years ago, and prior to that, a couple more years where I'd been slowly reddling myself, as we often tend to do, right? It's the close early in the day. Um, I was at the World Economic Forum, previous to this job, where I founded the blockchain team. And what I observed in the global role that I had was that we really had tremendous equity baked into our system, something that I knew, but we were replicating it within crypto. And specifically, we were seeing that uh, we were yet again seeing the flowing of money from wealthy countries, wealthy individuals, to poor individuals, not consideration of the needs of those individuals, their families, or their communities. And I thought this was highly problematic. Now, going back before that, I was an exec at a social enterprise called TechSoup, which was a global network that worked to help educate civil society organizations and their end users, uh, those who were getting services from these organizations, uh, about technology and how technology could help them. So everything from as simple as why using an Excel spreadsheet could help you organize food donations in your community, right, and keep that together, or your volunteer spreadsheet, to something like how using design thinking could help you reimagine the way that you engage with your community and do more community-oriented uh, activities, okay? I founded something called NGO Source, a SaaS product, that based on my observation that moving money across borders it was ridiculously expensive, ridiculously expensive, okay? The amount of, and I mean philanthropic dollars, the amount of administrative overhead and fees and the time to qualify a local organization to receive U.S. philanthropic donations, regardless of intention, regardless of quality, nothing, just based simply on diligence that you had to do was extremely costly, extraordinarily expensive. So to date, NGO Source, which still exists, the product that I launched, has diverted $3 billion of funds away from administrative overhead costs and opened that up to actually be used in service, right? So direct grants to people, to communities, to individuals, to focus on things that are important. Now, I want to give you a sense of the scale of the problem. The Global Philanthropy Report says that 260,000 foundations exist in almost 40 countries. They together capture 1.5 trillion US dollars in assets, okay? But there's a massive delta because to fully fund the sustainable development goals, the SDGs, which we as a society have agreed are our admirable, lofty attempts to change society, you'd need five to seven trillion US dollars. So even if we were completely efficient and effective using the assets that we have captured within philanthropy, there'd be a massive delta in what we could achieve. And we are not fully efficient and effective, okay? In fact, it's quite the opposite. And the reason for that is because we are not inclusive, because we rely on intermediaries. Terms are gonna be very, we hear this all the time in crypto, right? Intermediaries, we rely on top-down solutions. We assume that their scalability 
in the face of evidence that no such scale of it exists. Where hyper-local solutions are clearly preferential, we still favor in many cases, and we did even more so prior to NGOsource, which I will pat myself on the back for, we favor top-down solutions because they're more efficient. Doesn't mean that they're the best solutions. So you can imagine the amount of waste of this 1.5 trillion, which isn't even anywhere near the five to seven that we need in order to focus on the goals. Okay, now I kind of got um, pre-red-pilled, I say. A lot of us had a moment that made us very open to crypto. And for me, there were two such moments. One was being a lawyer uh, during Hurricane Katrina and working very closely with MoveOn and others that were on the ground in New Orleans trying to get local services to local people, trying to basically fund an infrastructure beyond just recovery to reconstruction and thinking about what that would look like. And the second was Haiti in 2010. I did a lot of work, I was doing a lot of work pre-qualifying organizations on the ground to receive tribal nations using NGO source. But instead, and if you Google this, which I encourage you to do, catastrophic consequences. So we had a lot of international relief organizations that went in, and there you get the horrible images of like you know, pallets of water bottles sitting in warehouses, no distribution mechanism for any of this. Food rotting and spoiling. And these are images that are not unique to Haiti, but to me, they were extraordinarily powerful, horrifying images of what happens if we're not efficient in our structures. So how can crypto help, and what are we already seeing that are improvements? I'll cite two different examples. One is India COVID relief. We were able to mobilize as a community, and this was led by Vitalik with his one billion at the time value donation of Ethereum, to really support local solutions to problems, to get money in the hands of wallet holders in local communities that could actually figure out what was needed on the ground. Was it medicine, was it food, what was it? Okay, and the second of course is Ukraine. We watched together, in, I mean it still blows my mind, in real time, the crowdfunding of a wartime defense. And there was no question that the $160 million that were raised through crypto were a catalyst that enabled the next billion dollars of global international aid to flow to Ukraine. And the reason that we could do that so effectively is because the Ukrainian government, ministers, senior officials, their humanitarians, understood what was needed and understood and pre had, had themselves already set up wallets. So we could very quickly as a community identify legitimate wallets in the hands of people that know what they're doing. So crypto enables, and already we're seeing this in real time, is enabling hyper-local solutions, enabling empowerment of people that know what is needed on the ground. That is something that traditional philanthropy has not excelled at, to say the least. Okay. So other things that we're seeing, we're seeing remittances. Remittances is a huge market. There are a number of examples of how you know, Coinbase in Mexico, Stellar doing work um, with MoneyGram, an African market, we're seeing tremendous opportunity engagement around how to make remittances more efficient. Right now in Africa, in Sub-Saharan Africa, migrants, 7% of migrants are actually from Sub-Saharan African countries to other countries. 7% fee on moving money using traditional systems. 1% to 3% using crypto. If you were a person fleeing across the border with something, with, with, where you could carry on your back, would you prefer to get to a banking system and have 7% of whatever someone from home sent you be taken away, or 1% to 3%? Right? We're talking about significant value of money for people who are in crisis and in need. And this is a place crypto is also helping. We've already seen these improvements, and they are real improvements. It's not theoretical or hypothetical. These are things that we have built together as a community over the past 13 in some cases, but you know, past years. We're seeing increased donations coming in. Uh, Every.org trains nonprofits on how to receive crypto donations into their wallets. And we're seeing that through tax advantage, you know, opportunities and things like this, um, that is a flow that's happening. And people, as younger and younger generations are 
choosing to donate more and more using cryptocurrency because they understand again, that they can track, there's accountability on what happens with those funds. There's new models you can create around what we call constituent engagement in philanthropy, constituent feedback, which means that the end recipient of something can weigh in on whether that thing was useful or not. So you can real time be agile in the models that you're engaging in. Again, not a place traditional philanthropy has excelled. It means experiments can move faster, interventions can be more agile, nimble, flexible, and respond in real time to what's actually happening in a community. And then lastly, we've seen examples where NFTs are being minted and used for charitable donations. Whether this was an ocean action, one of the first examples was Hanu Kitty, which launched in 2019, I believe, 2018, I believe. Um, and that, was, that raised just a ton of money as a, as a good example of a way that you could use this kind of fun thing we like to engage with as a means of supporting causes that were real to people. We're actually seeing campaign donations now. You can mint an NFT as a candidate and get funding that way as well. There's so many examples of where this can happen. Now, how do we land what we need to do? And to me, it comes down to a couple of ways we have to reconsider our engagement with each other and what we're building, particularly around philanthropy. And one is to center historically excluded populations. You hear this statistic a lot in, uh, in crypto, 1.7 million unbanked people right, in the world, right? 1.7 billion people. Unbanked is not the frame we want to use on this because that implies a solution is going to be found in legacy systems. I call these people historically excluded people because they have not been included in systems because the systems weren't designed to serve them. And through a variety of reasons, whether it's deliberate bias, systemic exclusion, whether it's regulation and policy, whether it's overactive KYC or AML activity, they don't have access to these systems. They're left out. So how do we think about including them in the building of systems that at the end of the day should be for their use, right? We don't want to recreate the systems we have now where we focus just on exclusionary models, right? You have to be pre-wealthy or have, have a, a certain level of digital access in order to engage with systems. They should be available and we should be focusing on a model of inclusive growth. And that's what we focus on at CCI. Now, I'll land on just a couple other points we have to think about. No technology, no economic solution is a, is, a, is a soup to nuts problem. We have to think about things like connectivity, education, digital infrastructure, and we have to rethink some of our regulations and ask ourselves how we went up in a situation where so many are left out of our systems. We, weren't, we didn't deliberately set these things up to be exclusionary, and yet they are. So that's my challenge to all of you as you go throughout your conference and throughout Consensus 2022 is to think about how can you be more inclusive in the work that you do every single day? Who's not in the room with you and how might you get them there? Thank you so much.